Listening to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This summer marks the 20th anniversary of the Supreme Court case, Watchtower versus Village of Stratton. In the landmark decision, the court struck down the town's ordinance that made it illegal to canvass or solicit door to door without a permit because it violated First Amendment protections for those types of activities. The decision directly affects events happening today with weeks left before our primary election. Political candidates are ramping up efforts to connect with voters. And with pandemic restrictions uh, still relaxed, many religious organizations are resuming their door-to-door interactions. That includes the Jehovah's Witnesses, the organization responsible for bringing the Watchtower versus Stratton case before the Supreme Court. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the organization's national spokesperson, Robert Hendricks, to discuss the importance of the 20-year-old decision. It's an interesting case. I don't think it gets as much publicity as it should. Uh, definitely not. I mean, really, when you come to think about it, none of our 50 Supreme Court victories get as much as they should. Really, there's no other one organization, certainly religious organization or corporate or nonprofit, that has done as much for First Amendment jurisprudence as Jehovah's Witnesses. In 1943, we had 12 cases decided for us in one day, all related to free exercise, free speech. And so these things go unnoticed. But many of our, our more public cases, like the Barnett case and the Gobitis case, which had to do with the salute to the flag and the right not to be compelled to say the Pledge of Allegiance, that has gotten a lot of play lately. But most don't know Jehovah's Witnesses have really fought hard to do the things that they're doing. If it weren't for those Supreme Court cases, our history in the United States would look very different. Let's talk about Watchtower versus Village of Stratton. This year marks the 20th anniversary of that Supreme Court decision. Can you give us some background behind the case? So in 1998, the Village of Stratton, uh, they created an ordinance, they passed an ordinance that required all those who wanted to go from door to door to get a permit, to apply for a permit that that was supposed to be non-discretionary, but was only going to be approved by the mayor. So on that permit application for the homeowner, the homeowner uh, would be able to check off a box that said Jehovah's Witnesses and would restrict them from coming to our door. So it, it was a, it was clearly an ordinance that really focused on Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and much of the language from that ordinance came from earlier laws that had been struck down by the Supreme Court some 60 years earlier. But they tried to make it in such a way that it was so broad that they wanted to show the court that it wasn't focusing on Jehovah's Witnesses. But in their efforts to do that, it became so overbroad that it not only applied to Jehovah's Witnesses, it applied to a neighbor who wanted to go across the street and talk about the garbage collection or a political issue or environment mental issue or a school issue. And so it it was something the court looked unfavorably on. Even though it was affirmed in the two lower district courts, it was overturned by the Supreme Court in an 8-1 decision on June 17, 2002. It was an overwhelming decision in that case. And it sounds like they might have inadvertently restricted all kinds of other activities like 
trick-or-treating or fundraising as well. Well, it did. And in fact, that was established during the hearing with the Supreme Court. And it became kind of a jocular moment in the Supreme Court that even Sandra Day O'Connor said, well, this would restrict even trick-or-treaters. They're actually asking for something, and Jehovah's Witnesses are not. But what's interesting about it is that the village said, no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't apply to trick-or-treaters. But clearly, the language did apply to both trick-or-treaters, to, to those who wanted to, to canvas for a political candidate, for those who wanted to go from door-to-door just to talk to their neighbor. They had to ask the government for permission. And the court saw through that. And this was very, very important for Jehovah's Witnesses, because uh, you might remember that that uh, that in the early, in the late 30s and 40s, the, the, the Supreme Court really uh, set the foundation of free speech and free exercise of religion for Jehovah's Witnesses in allowing us to go unfettered from door to door without a permit, without asking the government permission. In fact, on May 3rd, 1943, there were 12 cases that, that went in our favor that were decided in one day. One of them was uh, Murdoch versus Pennsylvania, a very, very important case for First Amendment jurisprudence and free exercise clause. Because it was there that the court, in fact, Justice William Will Douglas said, related to what we did, this form of religious activities, our door-to-door work, occupies the same high estate as do worship in the churches and preaching from the pulpits. And so once that was extended to Jehovah's Witnesses, it was extended to all. And what made Stratton so powerful, as opposed to some of those earlier cases, which were decided on the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, the Stratton case was really decided on the First Amendment related to freedom of press and freedom of speech. And it was Justice Scalia who said in his affirming opinion, whereas the free exercise claim for free exercise of religion, if acknowledged, would merely exempt Jehovah's Witnesses from the licensing requirement. The free speech claim exempts everybody, thanks to Jehovah's Witnesses. And so it was Justice Scalia who made sure that everyone knew that this didn't just apply to this one religious organization. This applied to all Americans. I'm thinking about, you know, the individual may have the right to say, I don't want anybody coming to my door. But for the government to make a blanket policy, that's where the violation came. Well, that's exactly right. And it goes back to Martin versus the city of Struthers. That was a key case in 1943 related to Jehovah's Witnesses again. And it was a very important case because the court basically said in in that case, in fact, I can just recite this one part. He says, whether such visiting shall be permitted has in general been deemed to depend upon the will of the individual master of each household and not upon the determination of the community. In other words, the Supreme Court was saying, I, as a homeowner, have a right to invite anybody into my home, or I have a right to say no. But you can't contravene that right by saying no before I want to say no. The government has no right to tell me who I can, uh, who can come to my door. I exercise that right. That's an individual right. And so not only uh, was the, the Stratton Ordinance taking the, the rights of Jehovah's Witnesses and those who would go to door, door-to-door away, it was also taking the homeowner's right away to decide on who would come to their door. And you mentioned the court cases that the Jehovah's Witnesses had been involved with earlier. Why does the Jehovah's Witnesses decide to get involved? What makes the First Amendment a priority for them? Most people think of Jehovah's Witnesses, and you think of peaceful people, which we are. Mm -hmm. We're neutral to governments. We're neutral to politics. We don't go around and canvas, and we don't lobby. So that's a really important point. 
So we're not going to hire a group of lobbyists to go to the Capitol and change the law. We're going to obey the laws. But here's the principle. When it comes to laws, governments forfeit their right to obedience in situations where they prohibit what God requires or require what God prohibits. That's the principle. And it goes right back to the first century apostles. When they first started preaching in Acts chapter 4, they were told they can't preach. And they simply said to the, to the high court, they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, judge for yourselves. But as for us, we cannot stop speaking about the things we have seen and heard. So in totalitarian governments, we simply go about our work in a, in a way that, that keeps us out of harm's way to the extent possible. But in a, in a country where their constitution guarantees that right, we will fight for the, that right. Uh, we will, as the apostles did in the first century, we will legally establish our right to preach the good news. When we talked last year, the pandemic was in a place where Things looked like it might be better. At that time, restrictions were just starting to be lifted. And now, a year later, with much of our population vaccinated and and pandemic restrictions either lifted or, or very relaxed, how has Jehovah's Witnesses resumed their outreaches? We're doing that step by step, not wholesale, because there's a lot of reasons for that. One is we, we for two years, were suspending not only our public ministry, but our meetings, our, our conventions. And so we were telling our folks, be careful and you know, have a proper respect for this, for this pandemic. Mask up if you choose to do so. Get vaccinated if you choose to do so. Protect yourself. And so we recognize that restoring everything and just going back to normal, still in the middle of a pandemic, hopefully in the waning days of it, would probably not have been the, the wisest course. So progressively, we have seen that things change. So in April, we saw our meetings open up. And so we went from virtual meetings, mostly Zoom, to now hybrid meetings. And then in June, we opened up our in-person ministry, but not our door-to-door knocking yet. So you'll see in Honolulu and Waikiki and many other places and in, in Kapolei, in many of the locations uh, all over the, the islands, you'll see our carts again. So we feel that's, that's safe, and we feel that our, our folks can remain safe and that people can have a choice whether to come up to us. And we've also resumed in-person Bible studies. So that's where we are right now. We have no idea when our door knocking will begin again, but we feel this progressive movement to open up has been good for all of us and good for our communities that are once again glad to see us back. Robert, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. That was Jehovah's Witness National Spokesman Robert Hendricks talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the 20th anniversary of the Supreme Court case Watchtower versus Stratton. is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, 
In today's Backyard Quiz, we visit one of Lanai's popular swimming and snorkeling spots. Located on the south shore, the crescent-shaped basin is also a protected marine preserve, which means vessels aren't allowed to anchor there. Like Hanama Bay on Oahu, Hulupoe Bay, visitors are expected to maintain the utmost respect for the marine ecosystem. One of the main attractions is the area's large tide pools located on the eastern side of the beach. Carved into a wall of volcanic rock, these tide pools are well protected from the pounding surf, which makes their waters ideal for observation and exploration. Though the area is home to many forms of marine life, this area is considered one of the best places in Hawaii to view and find the species Stenella alongirostris. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know if you can tell us the mammal's common name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NairitHawaii.com. Reality check circles back on the military's Red Hill underground fuel tank facility. The latest development has the Department of Health formally rejecting the Navy's defueling plan, saying it's devoid of details. But today, Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra has a follow-up story on the facility. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. So it's hard to believe that so much time has passed, you know, and all these d- different spills. But um, so you have a story about the status of a Navy captain that was in charge of the area. Right. So um, this Navy captain, Bert Horniak, um, he was one of the officials in charge of the Red Hill facility at the time of the November leak. And um He was later removed from his position over leadership and oversight failures um, following that catastrophic leak, Um, but yet he's still working um, for the Navy and overseeing Red Hill. Um, And he's just really one of several officials that were managing the facility that have kind of quietly moved on from their positions or retired, um, and no one has really faced any disciplinary action publicly. Right. I mean, he was a only one that was really named um, in that report that everybody was waiting for. Uh, and, uh, and and at this point now, they've got what some s- special group that's looking at, you know, if any, if there should be any other disciplinary action, right, taken. Exactly. So the U.S. Pacific Fleet put out the their investigation of what happened and sort of where the failures occurred in May and November when two fuel leaks happened last year. Um, and several people were named in the report, but they that they haven't announced any sort of like court martial or anything of the sort for any of these folks um, that will be uh, determined by a separate um, military body. And that 
those decisions may or may not become public, but if they do, we will certainly report on them. Yeah, and you know, with Hornyak, I know we've had him uh, on the show talking about the Red Hill situation, but um, you know, I mean, he might have some understanding and expertise, you know, uh, that could be helpful with this. Mm-hmm. But it, it is interesting that they kind of dinged him in the report, and yet he's still there in some other capacity. Right. The Navy said that when, you know, officers are removed from their positions, they can be reassigned to positions that are consistent with their training and experience. Um, And so that's why Horniak is uh, working for the Navy Petroleum Office at Pearl Harbor now. But, you know, of course, there are folks that feel that it's inappropriate for someone whose performance was deemed poor by the military itself to be still involved in now responding to the aftermath of the, the crisis. Right. We have the Sierra Club that has been very vocal about um, how they've handled things there. Right. I spoke to David Himo Frankel. He's an attorney for the Sierra Club, and he called it disturbing um, that someone who was a leader during the catastrophe is now um, involved in responding to it. He said, you know, they may have the knowledge um, to be helpful in some ways, but perhaps people like that shouldn't be making decisions. And so, you know, I I know that uh, you broke the story about the... um, the video that was showing the leak, uh, the leaky pipe that, that you know that sprung that leak, uh, and I know that the, at one time the military had said, well, they were going to be investigating, you know, how that video got leaked out. But have you heard? Is there any update on that? I I haven't heard. As far as I know, they sort of backtracked on those comments and said, no, no, um, you know, we're just sort of evaluating discipline. For overall for Red Hill, um, not specifically on the person who provided those images to us. Um, but uh, it was pretty disturbing to see the the fuel gushing uh, from the pipeline in November. It, you know, it's one thing to read it in a report, but quite another to, to see it with your own eyes. And um, that's still up for anyone to see on civilbeat.org. Yeah. And I know it was surprising for uh, health department officials to see because I think they had asked specifically for any video or pictures. Uh, and and that was not produced for them, right? We were all under the impression that there there weren't any images because the Navy had said, well, all the security cameras, you know, weren't functioning for whatever reason. Um, but what they didn't mention is that someone had recorded uh, images with their their phone. Right. They did say that it was footnoted in a report, but they did not actually show it to anybody. That is the military's version of transparency, yes. Yes. All right. Well, um, we'll see what happens next. But uh, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks for having me on. We've been chatting with uh, Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra to read her stories on Red Hill. Head to uh, civilbeat.org. Housing crisis and the economy are top issues facing Hawaii now. That's according to Republican Joe Webster, who's making his first bid for elected office. The Big Island resident has lived in Hawaii for the last six years and got interested in politics, working on a mayoral campaign. His website says he runs a tourist business renting Jeeps to visitors, and he previously worked a pre-IPO with uh, PayPal in its early days. We talked to Webster this week about what motivated him to run for Hawaii's second congressional district seat. We have a lot of things that uh, are broken that need to be fixed, but the housing crisis is something I think just needs a lot more attention on by by somebody with a little bit more experience on how to get things done. 
So I'm currently a small business owner here in Kaliwakona. Definitely affected by the pandemic, and you know my business is based on tourism, so I, I, I get the pain points uh, that a lot of folks are experiencing there, and also seeing a lot of issues with housing in the area. You know, good, hardworking people living out of their cars is just kind of sad. So I've spent about 20 years in technology as a project manager and sort of a business consultant, if you will solving problems, bringing teams together, you know, getting in a, in a room together with a whiteboard, going through all the different obstacles, you know, finding the path of least resistance and, you know, really just solving problems. And uh, my hope and intent is I can get in the office and apply some of those same uh, philosophies and methodologies, if you will, and solve some problems uh, with the government and just kind of how some of the things are still being kicked around and nothing's happening. So, I saw that uh, you had worked at PayPal. Yeah, that's correct. And so, um, yeah, so you believe what your business background then will help give you a boost? Yeah, I was actually pre-IPO at PayPal. Started with them a long time ago as a startup company and just kind of spent years building things. So I'm not a political or career politician. I'm a business guy and a problem solver. What's been your experience during this pandemic? Oh, boy, it's been a roller coaster. (laughs) You know, everything just just out the gate. And I'll just remind you, I spent a lot of years uh, um, essentially beefing up technology and and different uh, companies and that kind of stuff. So uh, one of the things that kind of started getting me a little wanting to get more involved was, you know, everybody got the unemployment, but of course all the unemployment servers were down and crashed and, you know, they they're on systems that are, you know, 30 plus years old. You know, you see stuff like that. And it's just, for me, it's just kind of hard to watch when you see a problem. I'm one of those people that just kind of want to fix it, but I wasn't able to reach out to anybody and really do anything, which is one of the reasons why I'm running for office. Cause that would give me the position capability to you know, to help folks out. I would say the the biggest hit that we had actually wasn't the initial shutdown of the island. It was August last year when Delta came around and our governor came out and said, you know, please don't come to Hawaii. And at that point in time, there were no, there there wasn't any help for local businesses or, or anything like that. So it really left a lot of folks high and dry without much time to plan for it. So it was kind of sad to watch. And you started this group, Big Island Open for Business. I started that during the Kilauea eruption a few years back. Because in my view, a lot of folks thought that essentially the whole island was on fire. And there was even pictures in the media and the the mainland Oahu being on fire. And from my view, you know, the the different organizations within the government that are supposed to communicate the the facts and what's what's happening weren't doing that. And, And just everybody thought the island was shut down. So I kind of rounded up a group of people the best I could to try to get as many people together and pitch in. And everybody just kind of like do our own thing to try to get the word out there that no, in fact, the big island's open for business, and you know it's not uh, it's not the entire state that's on fire. It's still okay to come out. And so, yeah, I mean, you were what then underscoring that during the pandemic as well, trying to get that yeah, message so out. Yeah, so it shifted a little bit. So during the pandemic, it was more of a shift to really just and again, just being a technical guy myself. At least in the big island, I'm not sure about the rest of the islands, but you can go around the big island and you see a lot of businesses that are just invisible on the internet. People can't find them. People don't know that they're open. So the intent was to help folks out and get you know Google business listings set up or have a central place for businesses that are open that are you know wanting and welcoming customers and just getting the word out there that we have a lot of local businesses that you know could use support from locals or visitors or or anybody otherwise.
You're new to politics. I don't know what the challenges have been for you in getting your campaign out there. I, I think earning money as a newcomer is definitely a challenge. And I think that's you just kind of take a look at the political landscape in general and you know, kind of understand that the folks that have been around for a while are going to be the folks with money. And typically those are the folks that uh, win offices. So, yeah, it's a little bit more of a challenge being a newcomer, for sure, and getting the word out there. And uh we're just kind of doing the best we can with what we got. Have you visited the other islands to, you know, drum up support? I have not. I have not been traveling around to other islands. I think we're kind of focusing on, you know, because budget constraints, just focusing on, you know, digital advertising and things of that nature. You get my name in front of people. And so what are the other issues that you'd like to tackle? Well, the economy in general, I think, just needs a lot of help. I mean, I, I think we're in a state of crisis, uh, generally speaking, here in America with the economy. So... I don't think the government, or at least Congress, is really doing much about that. And just in addition to the economy itself, just the lack of proactively planning for the types of issues that arise from being in this sort of crisis. For example, there's no reason why we should have been reactive with the baby formula shortage rather than proactive. We saw that coming. Nobody did anything about it. There should have been some sort of team or analysis being done on, on what would happen if we shut down a baby formula plant. And we, we should have forecasted the, the rising cost of fuel, too. I mean, that's common sense. Anytime there's any conflict in the world, gas prices goes up, especially if it's, you know, we're getting fuel from one of those countries. Nothing was done about it, and here we are being reactive, and everybody's kind of scrambling. There's kind of a pattern with that in the government. I mean, there have been calls for a gas tax holiday, but so far locally there doesn't seem to be much interest in that. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of good solutions <laughs> floating around out there, at least that I've seen. You know, if we ran the government like we ran a business, you know, if you had a burger shop and your burger supplier said, hey, we're going to be running out of burgers, you would go to another supplier, you'd forecast that and make sure you didn't have to shut down. And our government doesn't really work that way today, but I think it should. You're probably one of the, the underdogs in, in this race, but gosh, is there anything else that you want to get out to listeners out there, to voters? Yeah. So I'm running as a centrist. So I'm running, obviously, as a Republican. But I'm not far right, I'm not far left, I'm just kind of down the middle. I think we need folks with common sense that just know how to really solve problems, like I said, and don't just fall in alignment with you know other party members that are pointing fingers at each other and, and bickering and not getting anything done. I think there's middle ground pretty much on any issue, as long as you just focus on representing the people, because uh, that's, that's your job when you run for Congress. And so how are you spending the last couple of weeks here before the primary? Making phone calls, <laughs> lots and lots of phone calls. You know, I, I'm very grateful for the, the vaccines that we have these days, but we still need to consider we're still in a pandemic and we still have this transmissible virus. You know, I don't really have any inclination or urge to, to stand up a big rally and have a bunch of people getting together. I just mm -hmm. don't see the need for that. And that was Joe Webster, a Republican candidate from Kailua, Kona, who is running for CD2. He is over $60,000 in his campaign war chest, but has no plans to travel to other islands, preferring to launch, uh, launch his campaign uh, online from the Big Island's west side.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pacific American Lumber on Oahu with neolith-centered stone, a heat, stain, and scratch-resistant surface for indoor and outdoor countertops, flooring, and walls. PACAMLumber.com. HPR is hiring. Are you looking for a career change? We have several positions for you to consider. We're looking for new team members to organize our broadcast fundraisers and events, crunch numbers, and help our members with a smile. If you love HPR and want to play an important supporting role behind the scenes, apply today. View our job openings online at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, FICOH.com. Hundreds of conservationists gathered this month for the Hawaii Conservation Alliance's annual conference. Founded in 1988, the Alliance provides a backbone for state and community organizations to help coordinate efforts to protect our biodiversity. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with the Alliance's executive director, Emma Anders, about an upcoming report on conservation spending. This report is looking at publicly available data um, from the last 50 years or so, and what we see is actually an increase in conservation efforts, which is a great sign, uh, but also a growing need for conservation work. So when we look, we looked at both the status of the ecosystems and species. So what data do we have about forest cover, uh, about presence absence of rare and endangered species? And we also looked at what are the management actions that are going on? What's the investment that's going on? What are the engagement, what engagement is happening at the community level, um, all of those things. And, and also how is the field of conservation progressing? While we are seeing certainly a huge need for conservation work, we are seeing a lot of folks stepping up to the plate in that area. Mm. And looking at all that data that you collected in, in assembling this report, are there areas or species that are seeing particular positive momentum? There are certainly some some great examples um, when we look at, for example, the watershed partnerships, uh, the growth of those where we have up, up to 50% of the five largest islands being covered by some sort of watershed partnership. And so that's really significant um, because those allow for resources and conservation and sharing of knowledge and information. I think also in looking at conservation approach, We've seen the new implementation and expansion of the tool of community-based subsistence fishing areas, and now we're seeing that on Malka areas in community-based subsistence forest management. And in these areas, communities, especially communities of lineal descent, are developing, in some cases, administrative rules for actually how to fish, and in other cases, conservation approaches um, to managing their areas in ways that are regenerative to the community and to the native species and ecosystems. Mm. Well, that sounds incredibly positive, which brings me to the negatives, naturally. Mm. Are there areas where the data suggests that we're really falling behind? We're, we're definitely seeing 
challenges on the future and the present and the, in the present. And like I said, that the efforts have grown really well over the past 50 years, uh, but we've had also significant impacts, especially in the last 200 years in Hawaii of human activities. And so, when I talk about you know total percentages of native ecosystems, some are more impacted than others. So, for example, our dryland forest areas heavily, heavily, heavily impacted and because that's where most of human development has occurred. So I think that region is, cert- uh, is certainly an area where we have an enormous amount of work to do to restore and preserve our ecosystems, our watersheds, and then the native species that really should be present there. The other or two kind of big challenges that we are facing are those associated with the climate crisis and climate change. Uh, and invasive species management. And uh, invasive species, I think, are you know pretty well known and recognized in Hawaii, but we face kind of a constant onslaught as far as the potential introductions of new species. And that actually interacts then with some of the climate change issues. Hawaii is home to roughly a third of plant species that are considered endangered or protected under the Endangered Species Act. And I understand that since the Endangered Species Act was enacted in 1973, we've lost roughly one plant species a year. Are there particular conservation practices or initiatives on that front that you find really promising? There are some uh, great initiatives there. I think some of the, the watershed protection, when you're looking at an ecosystem level, especially when we have what we consider high levels of protective management and designation. So that can include ungulate exclusion, so fences that keep out feral goats and pigs, especially in some of these places that are hard to reach. Um, and therefore, you know, hunting isn't having a, a measurable impact on managing the population of those animals, uh, invasive animals. There's the Plant Extinction Prevention Program, and they work on some of the most highly, highly endangered and rare species, both in protecting them, the, the ones that do exist in the wild, as well as collecting seeds for seed banking. There's some been, been some really amazing work across the seed banks in the state to try and make sure we do have some of those uh, genetic resources so that when we have the appropriate capacity as far as the the ecosystems being protected and managed well, we can look at uh, replanting and restoring some of those species. There's been work in ferns. Actually, at the conference, there were some really cool presentations about looking at some of the ferns that have been preserved and, and the spores that have been preserved and how can those be used for rebuilding and replenishing some of the native plant populations. And with some of the technological uh, advances, for example, drone technology, some of our scientists have actually identified individual plants from species previously thought to be extinct in the wild. So it shows that our ecosystem does have an amazing capacity for regeneration under the right conditions and um, does give me a lot of hope uh, in some of those areas as well. Under the right conditions, because <laughs> the, the problem of conservation can seem so overwhelming because you can't simply clear an area of an invasive species and then walk away. You have to put in constant effort in order to just maintain a baseline. Given that we have a finite amount of resources devoted to conservation and a growing impact to native species and our ecosystems. Do we have tough choices ahead of us about how we 
divide and devote those resources? So I think I would say we have a lot of hard work ahead of us. And I think that we need to radically rethink our status quo as far as how we approach natural resource management, uh, how we approach economic management, uh, and work with our communities. And if we do that, we won't be in that tough decision of having to make hard choices. I do think that if we approach it as a zero-sum game, then we will be kind of backed into that corner uh, where we, we're facing ever-growing threats and uh, limiting capacity. You know, much like you can't do one load of laundry and have clean clothes for the rest of your life, or you can't cook one meal and have food for the rest of your life. Um, caring for our environment, it's, it's a reciprocal experience. It gives back to us, um, but it's a lifelong and generations-long project. When you say rethinking our entire approach, can you give some concrete <laughs> examples of, of what that would entail? So I, I think, first of all, that will entail a lot of group work. Like I mentioned, some of these community-based subsistence areas, um, both on land and in our near shore areas. It, it is requiring people to interact differently with their environment and with their uh, native resources. but. It's not about loss. It's not about exclusion of people. It's not about giving things up. And what folks are finding is that they're actually seeing increased benefit. Mm. In the status report, was the Hawaii Conservation Alliance able to come up with a number of what was available in dollars for conservation funding? We did not do a complete economic analysis. There's some folks out there who are attempting to do it. It's a really tricky thing to pin down because it changes so dramatically. So. So if you look at state funding, for example, the state of Hawaii invests typically less than 1% of our total state budget into conservation. So that's not a super impressively high number uh, if you look at a percentage of our overall state investment. Uh, but there are also private grant funds and federal grant funds that come in. Uh, now those fluctuate though year to year. And so that's why it's really hard to pin down. And I would say that one of the conclusions of our report is that sustainable long-term funding mechanisms are a tool that we don't have that we need, where so much of the investment from year to year can fluctuate, and that can be really hard when you're looking at projects that really might take a decade or more to, to have the results that you want to see. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the recent reports, Conservation International did an analysis where they estimated that we're about $360 million short annually as far as overall funding. But like I said, that's going to fluctuate year to year. We have inflation. That's going to change things a lot. We are pretty far short, I think, of our total investment. You know, one of the things we were really happy to see this year is the legislature invested $4 million of capital uh, improvement project funds for the watershed protection uh, initiative. So that's it falls under the umbrella of Sustainable Hawaii 30 by 30, looking at fencing 30% of our priority watersheds by 2030. And that project is on track, and, and that annual investment will keep them on track. Uh, that being said, it was literally the very last day of session that that number went from four million to zero back to four million. So that's what I mean by sustainable funding mechanisms where uh, it allows the, 
the professionals who are out there doing the work to plan effectively, uh, to be cost efficient when they know they will have resources. And, and then it allows also for those projects to stay on track mm-hmm. because it, it's ongoing work. That was Emma Anders, Executive Director for the Hawaii Conservation Alliance. She spoke with the conversations of Savannah Harriman Pote about the snapshot of biodiversity across the islands. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. On our Manu Minute, our bird today is the picture of elegance until it starts to run. We've got the calls of the sleek but sometimes clumsy cattle egret for you today, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Patrick Hart is with the biology department at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. He has what you need to know about the egrets. Cattle egrets are those bright white birds with long yellow legs and bills. They're often seen along roadsides and fields, and especially love to sit on the backs of horses and cows. They were introduced to Hawaii around 1961 to control flies, but are now widely found around all the main Hawaiian islands. Cattle egrets forage for just about any animal they can swallow, but are considered harmful as they can be flight hazards at airports and are nest predators for some native Hawaiian water birds. You can often hear the calls of cattle egrets as they fly overhead in flocks to their roosting areas at the end of each day. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering guided nature adventures on Hawaii Island, designed to help inspire connection and stewardship of the land. More information at hawaii-forest.com. On the next Fresh Air, women's soccer pioneer Brianna Scurry talks about being a goalkeeper, winning two Olympic gold medals and a World Cup, pawning the two gold medals after a severe concussion led to depression and financial disaster, and how the woman who helped Scurry get the surgery she needed and buy back her medals is now Scurry's wife. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. This morning's backyard quiz, we took a trip over to Hulapo'e Bay, which has a reputation for being one of Lanai's most beautiful swimming and snorkeling beaches. Sunbathers bask in the summer heat on wide, sandy stretches, while snorkelers get a firsthand look at the vibrant fish and native plant life in the reefs. The entire area is a protected marine preserve, which means no vessels are allowed to anchor there. Tide pools are protected from the surf, which is another draw for beachgoers. A word of warning, swimming is safe in the summer, but waves in the winter are very dangerous. Though the area is home to a wide variety of marine life, the bay is considered one of the best places in Hawaii to find and view one species in particular. 
Stenella langerostris, most commonly known as spinner dolphins. And congrats to Brendan from Kaimuki. You are today's winner. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Andrew Harvey. I'm author of The Hope and Play Life More Beautifully. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about putting love into action all over the world now. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Our next story is about saving some things of value and sharing knowledge about how to best care for our cultural artifacts. A group of museum and archive professionals are in Honolulu to help launch a new training program. It's an effort to bolster the number of indigenous professionals caring for indigenous collections. HPR reporter Ku'uvehira Ishii joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, Yes, this inaugural cohort of a Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander Museum Institute is what they're uh, being called, includes about 20 individuals from Hawaii and and across the Pacific. So Guam, Kiribati, Samoa, who have been spending about the last four weeks here in Honolulu, uh, learning best practices in everything from preservation management to disaster planning to archival storage. And so this institute is really a, a partnership between the University of Hawaii at Manoa's American Studies Department and the East-West Center. It's actually based on uh, a program that the East-West Center had uh, provided back in the 70s, where it sort of took folks under their wing, trained them, and then sent them back out into the communities. That's the goal with this program as well. So, uh, as you mentioned, these are professionals who are uh, emerging or mid-career and work in museums, cultural centers, some are librarians, archivists, and others do a repatriation work where they go out and find uh, their treasured artifacts elsewhere and, and bring them home. And so the goal of, of this institute is really to give them that training so that they can return home and care for their treasured artifacts, objects, uh, records. It's really the first of its kind, uh, says Noel Kahanu, who manages the institute as part of a, this is a, a long name here, but it's called Weaving a Network of Care for Oceanic Collections Project. And, and the idea there is really to build that capacity and, and strengthen uh, NHPI representation in the museum. Uh, so this cohort was able to work at some of the Oahu uh, landmark museums, including Bishop Museum, where a part of the group, the delegation, and I wanted to bring this up for you, I know your Guam roots, but the delegation from Guam actually held a ceremony with these uh, important Lottie stones. 
these cultural treasures that were taken uh, from the, these islands more than a century ago. Uh, here's Kahano. About a hundred years ago, someone named Hans Hornbostel did a series of excavations in Guam and Northern Marianas and removed a lot of material. It included some laddie stones, which are these structures that held up their homes. And the museum has several of them. What this cohort did was it provided them with the opportunity, our delegation from, from that region, to meet the people at Bishop Museum and to start conversations about where things belong. I had heard about the Laddie Stones and, and was just curious about how they got here. Right, and that's the first uh, I know of that sort of history of those stones. But I do know they are also not on display at the Bishop Museum. So they are still, they still remain in storage. And so the cohort member I, I was able to speak to, Elisa Santos, who is a Chamorro language revitalization expert who's actually joined the cohort to learn more about how to care for archival documentation, documents and, and materials because she wants to build an archive of Chamorro language resources for the community to use. And so she was one of the members to uh, have held this, this ceremony with the Lottie Stones and she was able to talk to the caretakers there at the Bishop Museum who work with these objects and let them know how important they are to her. Uh, here's Santo. Every time we go to the Lottie, it's, it's like we don't know whether to, to smile because it brought us together or to kind of weep and be sad because of the state that they're in or the fact that they're not home. We decided that it was best to pay our respects and we're so happy that others joined us today. And I think for me, there's a lightness in the air because I feel like we can leave them knowing that they're sort of still in good hands, at least with the, the Hawaiians who are here at Bishop. They know what the significance of the stones to us. They know what it means to see your cultural heritage not being cared for. And so just the fact that they simply know that, that they were there in that space with us, kind of gives me some, some relief. Uh, that's just one of, of the many stories coming out of this museum institute and this cohort. Uh, the other being, you know, the threat of climate change uh, on these Pacific Islander nations and sort of the implications of that on their museums and artifacts. And that's the focus of this last week of the Institute, which wraps up uh, at the end of this week with a uh, an exhibit at the East West Center Gallery that's going to open up on Sunday. Yeah, it, it is an interesting uh, a gathering. I mean, I know there are some Evie there from Guam, and so... Uh, I think there there have been discussions about what to do. You know, does Bishop Museum return that to the 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 people of Guam, or do they keep them here? Or, you know, so lots of interesting conversations to be had with this group. But thank you so much. No, exactly. Kuvay. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking to H. Bear's Kuhuvehi Hirishi. You can check out her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we start hearing from the leading candidates vying for the number two job in the state. 
got a story you'd like to share, leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, find our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.